Welcome to the podcast of the week by the Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence for the History of Emotions, Europe 1100 to 1800. Enjoy hearing how emotions make history. I'm Thomas Dixon and I'm Professor of History at Queen Mary University of London where I direct a Centre for the History of Emotions. And I'm here visiting the very large Grand Australian Centre for the History of Emotions with its several nodes and I'm a partner investigator of that Australian Research Council Centre and I'm here meeting lots of people and comparing the work that we do. The Queen Mary Centre for the History of Emotions was set up in 2008-2009 and so it's been going for quite a while and right from the outset we've specialised in bringing together on the one hand historians of science and medicine in particular and on the other hand cultural and social historians with broader interests and to try to show in particular how scientific and psychological understandings of emotions and feeling have emerged and changed over time and how important they are historically. And then the Australian Research Council Centre was then set up quite early on in our lifetime, a couple of years later, and so we were delighted to discover uh, the work that you were doing out here, um, initially when it was led by Philippa Matten and now taken over by Andrew Lynch. And, coming over here has given me just a direct sense of what a large group it is, you know, over a hundred people at, at this meeting all in one place is amazing uh, to see. And there's a very nice complementarity between our two centres because, as I've said, we've tended to specialise science, medicine, psychology, psychiatry, and mainly, but not exclusively, in the modern period, the 19th, 20th century, right up to the present. Whereas the focus of the Australian centre has mainly been 1100 to 1800 on European history. Uh, so there's a nice complementarity uh, and it's nice to compare the different ways that we've approached those topics. One area in which the Australian Centre's done a huge amount of work that I've been really impressed to learn about is in education and outreach. And while I've been here during this visit this year, in 2016, I've been really fascinated to find out about the, the, the Shakespeare workshops and schools, the work with older people, the work with indigenous peoples and looking at the rather traumatic, repressed, painful emotions there in that relationship, but also forgotten friendships uh, through history. Um, and also very excited to hear about the online game that you've been developing here. So lots of, me, lots of things for me to learn here. So my route into the history of emotions started when I was a student although when I was a student, history of emotions wasn't really a thing. It wasn't really a, a recognised subject area at all. So when I was studying, I started off in theology and religious studies. Um, that was my first degree. Um, and I honestly can't quite remember, but at that stage already, I was interested in emotions and, and what they were. Partly, like most human beings, I guess, and especially young teenage human beings, I was very caught up with all sorts of strong feelings and emotions myself, and I was curious, what are these things, and how do they fit with this stuff I'm learning about? rationality and reason and intellect. So that was the kind of loose human and scholarly foundation. And then after a master's in the history of science and then back to doing a PhD in the history of ideas and theological ideas, that's when I really hit on emotions as a, a topic I wanted to know more about. Um, and my PhD ended up being a study of the difference between passions and emotions. So that was my way in, those terminological differences. Augustine and Aquinas and these medieval theological writers I was looking at were talking about passions of the soul, affections, affects, 
And I had this moment of thinking, well, maybe those aren't emotions, or at least they're subtly different from emotions. And that really was the thing that kept me occupied then for three or four years, was thinking about what was that difference. And to this day, pretty much everything I do tends to be driven by the curiosity I have about language and terminology and words and how central just simple words are to labeling and constructing our entire emotional repertoire. The question of primary sources for the history of emotions is a really difficult and complex uh, uh, one. I started out in intellectual history, um, and so there the sources are very straightforward. They're normally printed, they are often canonical works uh, by great thinkers uh, who have written theories and published them about the passions, affections, feelings, emotions, and so on. So I guess primary sources for intellectual historians are relatively straightforward. But even in that field, I've always wanted to look beyond the canonical text to look for intellectual history or intellectual discourse in other sources, like novels or newspapers or even in private sources, to find a young Henry Sidgwick, for example, a Victorian intellectual, looking at his diary when he was a, a young student, and finding his intellectual struggles there uh, about whether he was a Christian or not, about whether he could follow Jesus or what he understood altruism uh, uh, and human love to be. So that's just an example of even in intellectual history you can find emotional sources beyond the published texts. But then in other projects I've done, the sources have been different again. So for example, I finished a book last year on weeping tears, and there I really cast my net extremely wide, uh, and with, with digital and, and searchable sources now you can quite quickly do a search for references to tears, crying, weeping, sobbing, and so on, and find them in, in short stories or in medical reports or parliamentary debates even. Um, and then there's a question of how, how to use those very, very varied sources to make, make a picture that makes sense. Um, and one place that I failed actually is I'd hoped to find at least a few tear-stained documents that I could include as primary sources for that project. And to be fair, some of my colleagues did tell me about such documents, but I never actually laid my hands on them and they never became part of what I did. But maybe someone else in the future will write a history of tear-stained primary sources. Because, of course, you know, those documents would have a lovely sort of material resonance as well as uh, intellectual work. And then in my new project, for the first time, I'm really going in search of actual emotions, if you like. I, I wanted to write about anger, rage, resentment, fury, indignation, and really to find those experiences in all their complexity. And I'm just at the beginning of, of that project. Um, and again, well, I, I guess for most projects in the history of emotions, the potential sources are almost infinite. The question is how to interpret them. Um, you know, a representation of an emotion is not an emotion. Um, a, a, a biographical, or an autobiographical rather, account of a feeling is not the feeling. We never ever get to the feeling. You might say, even in our own experience, we never quite get to the absolute authentic heart of the feeling as feeling. We're always dealing with representations of. Um, so that, but in a way, that's, that's the exciting challenge of it, is, is to be clear and to be clever in the way that you try to do that interpretation. I think for most historians, whether they admit it or not, their interest in their topic is at some level autobiographical or comes from some concern or interest of theirs in their normal, real life, as it were. And that might be a psychological, emotional need or issue of theirs, and for historians of emotions, perhaps that's even more likely. Um, 
but it might be something in their education or in their culture in their society which has grabbed them or or um, grabbed their interest in some way um, so I thought normally one's research topics are are driven by one's own interests, concerns, feelings, attitudes, and those, of course, uh, come from the, the culture and society we live in. It may be that in other cases it's a more purely academic uh, process of discovery or process of, of thought. But in any case, whether we want to or not, um, we inevitably are in that conversation between our scholarly work and the culture and society that we live in. Um, and I guess different scholars have different attitudes to that. Some people aren't massively interested in that relationship uh, and other people want to make a lot of, uh, out of it. Whatever your personal view, uh, increasingly I guess universities and funding bodies will want to see that there is some relevance and some conversation uh, going on and I've always been keen to do that so, um, so that's been fine as far as I'm concerned. And with both my last two topics, weeping first and now anger, there's seems to me obvious huge kind of resonance in terms of the culture that I live in and the, the political culture and, and the kind of popular culture that I find myself living in. And in both cases there was, ne there was not any conscious process of right now I've got to think of something kind of topical for my next research project but I'm sure you know that, that they arose because of my, my surroundings. And so right now as we're talking now President-elect Trump is on everybody's mind. The election was last week. Um, and there's been a lot of emotion in, in response to that, obviously, uh, all around the world, not just in America. And commentators are increasingly saying it was all about angry voters, the forgotten white middle classes, uh, working classes, the angry voter. Um, and so as a historian uh, of emotions, I want to know, is that true that those people are angry? What does it even mean to say that they're angry? And what historical story can we tell about how we came to this point? What comparisons can we make? Is there really anything special about this moment now? Is it more angry than other periods uh, or not? And so on. So we'll see what happens. So one thing that I do, and I always recommend to my, my research students they should do as well, is to keep track of every reference in popular culture or in politics or in news that I see, which is of any potential relevance to my research. Um, so I, well actually I use Storify on, um, on the internet because it's a very quick way to press a button and then it saves it. But there's obviously infinite number of ways you could technically do it. Um, but I try and keep track of every reference I come across on Twitter, on the news, uh, the newspaper, um, that's potentially relevant in terms of TV programs, films, events and so on. Uh, and then when it comes to the end of the project or during the project when you're writing it up, when you're trying to explain it to a journalist, you're trying to explain it to a group of school children, um, or you're giving a public lecture, you've got this kind of database of, of, of examples which can help you orient your research towards the realities that we're living with now. Right from the outset at the Queen Mary Centre we wanted to find ways to communicate with various different audiences and to, I suppose, get attention for our research and find public interest in our research and make ourselves useful. Uh, to different people um, and we've experimented with lots of different things. We, we started a blog after a year or two um, and then after that we got a Twitter feed um, and we've made podcasts and some of us have been fortunate to get ourselves on, uh, involved in BBC radio or, or television programs. Um, and all of this has happened in a fairly haphazard way but you learn as you go along about the different media and the different audiences and they're very very different. Um, and the challenge, one that I've been talking about with, with my opposite numbers here in Australia this week, is how you go from dissemination to engagement. 
So we've been fairly successful in getting our work known, uh, getting people reading and listening to interesting things that we've been doing. Um, but the kind of two-way engagement is obviously the, the thing that is harder to get towards and what we're working on um, more on our, on our current project. I think it's fair to say that we live in an increasingly emotional culture. That's a bit of a vague thing to say, but certainly even in my lifetime, popular culture, the style and television and politics, the kind of things that the kind of media and, and discourse and representations that we live with, the style of emotional expression has changed from more reserved to more expressive. So, for example, the kind of Oprah Winfrey television show in the 1980s. I remember that first coming out and that represented, I think, a kind of something new. This kind of confessional, very emotional television in which people were encouraged to bare their souls, to be kind of confessional, to talk about their feelings. So both celebrities and also normal people on the show encouraged to get into this very emotional kind of dynamic. Uh, and then there have been all sorts of other shows since then. Reality television in all its, its forms political discourse, political performance, it was very, very notable in the 1980s when politicians started weeping um, on camera. So Margaret Thatcher did it in a TV interview. Bob Hawke in Australia famously uh, wept on several occasions. So the reason I say all of this is I'm trying to explain why historians now, in the last 20 years or so, got interested in emotions. And I think part of the answer is popular culture and politics. But then you have the question, well, why did they become more um, emotional? What's that all about? And a very general and not very enlightening answer on that would be that we lived through a period of two world wars. There was a period in the middle of the 20th century of war, austerity, fear, um, when in Britain and, and, and certainly in other countries too there was this ethos of the stiff upper lip and stoicism and resilience and it was not a time for indulging in feelings. In a way I think uh, a society and a culture has to be quite prosperous and quite peaceful for people's individual emotional lives to become a subject of great interest um, and analysis. In a way, it's a bit of a luxury um, to have the time to reflect upon the emotional well-being, uh, literacy and resilience of individual citizens. Um, so the reason I think it's important is because it is a, it's a way to ask, in some ways, quite familiar questions about culture and sexuality and gender, but in a new framework, and I think that's always um, refreshing and enlightening to have a new set of questions to ask. Um, hopefully it's important because it reflects something back at the society that we live in and offers a surprising angle on something that's become very prominent in our society. It provides a way that people could compare, if you like, the new age of sensibility that we live in now with previous ages of sensibility, um, such as in 18th century Europe and to ask questions about, well, when it happened then, what was going on? What was the connection between sensibility and the French Revolution, or sensibility and consumerism? And if we can learn that about that period, what does that mean about us um, today? So emotions, by their nature, are very complex things, and that's one of the things that I find engaging and interesting about them. You know, they involve the body, the mind, they involve thoughts and feelings, they involve aesthetics and the arts. I mean, it's very hard to do much in the history of emotions without coming up against the, the creative arts, whether it's painting or music or drama, novels and so on. Um, and so because of that complexity, it, it's a very interdisciplinary field, and that's great. And so it, uh, it, it's a history of emotions is something you can explore through 
um, performance and through the history of drama, it's something you can explore through music, and you can explore through painting and history of art, as well as, if you like, more conventional forms of mainstream social and political and intellectual history as well. So it's got this huge potential to draw in people, not only from lots of different kinds of history, but from lots of different kinds of discipline. And it's exciting to see that people are now starting to teach courses in the history of emotions. So when I was a student, didn't exist as something you would study at university. Uh, and now others, including myself, um, are just at the beginning of designing undergraduate courses and teaching it to students. Um, actually, I'm just designing a course I've not yet taught it, so I'm looking forward to finding out what it's like teaching it to students. Um, but hopefully there will be many years to come of students who can benefit from all this research that's going on. Um, and I imagine, and from talking to other people, I gather that it's a very engaging topic for students. Um, to think about this different way of looking at emotions, not only to look at their own emotions in historical context and to maybe think differently about their own minds, but also to understand that history can look very different um, when come at from this point of view. For me, in a way, looking at the history of emotions, um, looking at the past through the lens of emotions is a bit like that moment in The Wizard of Oz, the, the, the original film where it goes from black and white to technicolor. There can be this sense of suddenly realizing this huge richness and, and um, the vividness of or certain aspects of the past you might not have thought about. And as for the, the longer future of history of emotions, who knows? Um, I run a center for the history of emotions, I teach the history of emotions, but I and others will move on, um, and who knows? Some trends like this within academic history last for decades, uh, some last for years, uh, but none of them last forever. Um, so we'll see where it goes uh, in the future. But for the moment, it's a very rich and enjoyable area to work in. If you enjoyed this podcast by the ARC Centre for the History of Emotions, please go to our website, www.historyofemotions.org.au.